So yes, we plan to continue with Colossians again today, and we'll focus on verses 24, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And our text is from verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see that on page 1,353. Verse 24. Paul's in prison for his faith. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is a church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations that now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man, and all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So we're going to see, you know, in suffering, it looks like a picture of defeat for the Christian, especially in times of persecution. Church looks so defeated. And yet, what's held before us in 25 through 29 is the victory of the of Christ who's at work in our lives. You know, you think of today's world, you know, man today images or imagines that he can create a future world where everything is perfect, harmonious, and peaceful. If that should happen, that should come from man himself. Think, for example, of Elon Musk, like the world's richest man, a multi-multi-billionaire. He imagined a future. He imagines a future world where everything is glorious, peaceful. Through the use of, how? Through the use of technology. Through the use of technology, he envisions a, a glorious future. And you know, as a result of that, many people see him as a kind of a savior. They see in him and they look to him as a kind of a ray of hope in a world where there's so much division, a world where there's so much hatred and so much fear. He's not the only example. Uh, you think of science today. Right? It's, it's, the science itself is, a scene, is seen often as a means of building, building is, is, some, is a means where something will bring in a new world, a new world of harmony and inclusivity. You know, science, the new world order, these are going to bring in a new world of inclusivity. You think of the, the Pride Month of June, 
that all fits into that agenda where you remove all distinctions, remove the distinction of good from evil, remove the distinction of darkness from light, and you have this inclusive, glorious picture of, a, of peace. That's their aim. The congregation, these visions of man creating paradise on earth is nothing new. That has been happening ever since the time of fall of man in the garden, right? Ever since you see man coming or wanting to be a god and you see it coming in new packaging. It's always being repackaged and trying to be sold to us in different forms. You know, it's the serpent. It's the serpent again and again fighting, fighting against the Christ, fighting against the promise of God's word. It's the serpent that wants to remove Christ and God from the world and for man to think that he can bring in the glorious destiny himself. It's the serpent that seeks to bring all this about and he uses human agents, uses principalities and powers to try to undermine the kingdom of Christ. And yet, the world's only hope is Christ. There is no other hope in the world. The only hope of the world is Christ. You know, in contrast to what you see around us, Christians have a sure and lasting hope. What the Bible means by hope, that's what's brought out so beautifully here in Colossians 1 verse 27. It's rich, it's real, it's not pretend, it's not... Uh, it's not suspicious. We don't need to be suspicious about it. It's not fake, but it's real. It's full. It's truly satisfying hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's really the, the focus of this passage. Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see in Paul's day too, in the circumstances the church was facing, in which Paul was facing the apostle, the, the ambassador of Christ, right? The preacher to the whole Gentile world, to the nations. We're going to see, first of all, his suffering. It just looks like defeat in the eyes of the world. But second of all, we're going to see the message of the risen Christ. It's a message of victory. So the looks of a defeat on one hand, but yet the reality of victory on the other. So in returning to Colossians, after a few weeks, we need to just review briefly where we've come from. Think about the fact that the letter was written at what time? When the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary, was in prison. Why was he in prison? He was, prison, he was in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord, Overall, you know, this letter that Paul sent to a group of believers he never had met. He never had met the believers in the church of Colossae. The church in Colossae, you may recall from 1 verse 7, was started by Paul's co-worker, Epaphras, a co-worker of Paul. He was the one who was, who was raised and he grew up in that city. 
And Epaphras, as we know from chapter 1, recently visited the Apostle Paul in prison. And what did he do there? He was simply updating the Apostle Paul on how the church was doing. And he also mentions some of the, and we're going to come to, come, come to that in, in the book of Colossians, but he mentions some of, the, some of the cultural pressures, the pressures from the culture, from the society that was tempting them to go away from Christ, tempting the believers to walk away from Christ. And so Paul writes this letter for what purpose? To encourage the Colossians. He challenges them, went to a greater devotion to Christ in the midst of the, the conflict and the persecution that he sees going on around them. And then that's why he really focuses on Christ in the first chapter. He's the exalted one. He's the risen one. He's the all-sufficient one for everything that we need in life and in death. Christ, Christ himself. And you notice that he opens his letter with two prayers. The first one is a prayer of thanksgiving. Right? He thanks God that they are faithful to Jesus. Right? They are showing love for God. They are showing love for one another in light of the hope of the new creation that Christ has in store. So that's the first prayer, prayer of thanksgiving. He thanks God for their faith. But the second one, verses 9 through 14 of chapter 1, he prays that they may walk, that they may grow in wisdom and understanding of Christ. And you'll notice that this prayer is followed by a poem. It's often called the song in the church. It's really the main section of all of the book of Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It talks about Christ. Who is he? He's the first born of all creation. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, right? He's the first, he, he's the first born from the dead. Okay, so this Christ, who's the all-sufficient one, the one who's the hope of glory, he's the one by whom all things were created, all principalities, powers, they're all subject to him. But he's also the one who redeems, right? The firstborn from the dead, by whom he reconciles all things to himself through his resurrection from the dead. Apostle Paul now, however, is in prison. Chains, chains on his hands, his arms, chains on his feet. Why? Just for announcing this truth, this glorious truth that the risen Jesus is Lord and King over all. And when he does that, what's he doing? He's challenging. He's challenging the status quo. He's challenging all the earthly authorities, the powers that are around him. And he's showing to them that they're not the boss. They're not the ultimate authority. Christ is the ultimate authority. And you see what happens to Paul? What? This is a good news? What's he doing in prison for this? Not only for him, not only for him does it look like defeat, but it looks like defeat for the church. The apostles taken away from the church, Christ's body. And even for the word of God. Wait a minute, we thought the word of God was going to triumph and it's going to have its reign overall. What's it doing in prison? What's it doing locked up? 
We know Satan loves to work hard. And yet, even in the midst of suffering, what does Paul say? Does he complain? He says, I rejoice. Verse 24, I rejoice in what? In my riches. No, I rejoice in my sufferings. What's sufferings? Sufferings are hardships, afflictions. In this case, he did not bring it upon himself. But in this case, is because he was serving Jesus Christ. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. For whom? For you. There you see the Apostle Paul, the servant of Christ. He says, I do it for you. I do it for you as a congregation in Colossae. And that's not all. He says, I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ. And again, he says, for the sake of his body, for the sake of the church. That's why he's rejoicing, because it's for the sake of Christ. This body, the believers belong to Christ. So what's he saying when he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ? Well, he's not thinking that he's saving the Colossian church from their sins and consequences, right? He's not, he's not saying that, is he? No, not in any way. That work was already done by Christ on the cross. Totally done. Once and for all time, the Bible says that Christ gave his life for the church. Remember on the cross, right? Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's been accomplished. He made redemption. Christ made complete satisfaction for sin on the cross. But that's true. Complete satisfaction has been made by Christ on the cross. Paul is not busy making more satisfaction for sins because Christ did it all. But, and here's the Here's the application. Christ made satisfaction, but his enemies are not satisfied. Christ's enemies are not satisfied. They could not get enough of punishing Jesus. Even after all that they did to Jesus, they wish they could have done more, such as their hatred against Jesus. And so what do they do? It's filled up in his followers. They continue lashing out. They continue going against his followers. Then Jesus said in John 15, he said, if they persecuted me, he says, they will also persecute you. A student is not above his master. He says, they will not treat you fairly. The world will not treat you fairly or justly. They will be angry. And they're angry because... Jesus is Lord. He has won the victory. He has won the victory over sin, over death, and hell. Satan knows that, but Satan is continually agitating the people who are against Christ to fight, to over, try to overcome. They're not satisfied, even in what they do. They want to do more and more. They want to add to Jesus' suffering. You know, Jesus is no longer present on earth, so they can't throw stones at him. But what do they do? He's reigning from heaven. They throw stones at his followers. And that's why the apostle Paul's in prison. Remember what Paul, when he was Saul, remember when he was preaching, 
or when he was, sorry, when he was persecuting Christians, Christ confronted him on the road. And what did Christ say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? Because in lashing out against the believers, Saul was lashing out against Christ. Now the Apostle Paul is willing to suffer. He takes great joy in it, even the injustices that he receives from his enemies for the sake of Christ's body. Not just willing, but he rejoices in his suffering for the sake of the truth. You know, by drawing the enemy's fire on himself, there's something else here. He draws the enemy's fire on himself so that he can spare the young church from that suffering. He doesn't want to see them suffer more. He says, let me take that upon myself. You see there's something of the servanthood of Christ in the Apostle Paul. Two times he says, right, for you. And then again, for the sake of his body, the church. Paul's suffering is not a sign of defeat. You know, there's other forms of suffering in our lives as Christians, right? Um, besides persecution. Sometimes temptations can be very long and slow to overcome. Sometimes it's very difficult to say no to sinful desires, to worldly pleasures, sinful pleasures. And you see the world ruling, you see the world enjoying all the things that Christ says no to. And it looks like they have everything and it looks like defeat for Christians. But is it? No. For Paul, he could say this hardship, this hardship is actually a cause for joy. Remember, the body of Christ is what? The body is the body of our crucified Messiah. It's a body that continues to be crucified to sin, to the flesh, to Satan. And yet it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the crucified Christ, does it? Where does it end? Did Christ stay dead? No. He arose again from the dead. It ends with the resurrection. And that's why Paul rejoices. That rejoicing uh, in Paul is such that he says, <laughs> in my sufferings, I know it doesn't end there. He sees way more. He sees way beyond. He sees the Christ who arose again from the dead. He says, there's way more to life than suffering. Suffering is light compared to the eternal weight of glory that's yet coming, he would say later. Uh, no one could take that joy of the hope of glory that was in him, even as the chains were on his arms and on his legs. And that leads us to the second point. Verses 25 to 29 in Colossians chapter 1. You know, Apostle Paul, he says, regardless, you know, I'm going to spread this message because this is the only message that brings true freedom, true joy. And he just continues to bring that message throughout the entire Roman world of that day among the nations, the message of Christ's victory. Look at verse 25. He says, he's, he talks about the body of Christ, the church of which I became a minister, you could say, which I became a preacher, which I became a servant 
according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. You know, the word was being spread everywhere. The word was having its full effect. All those whom God was working in to bring to salvation were coming to faith. All his elect were coming to faith all throughout the empire. And you know today too, every person has, a res- has opportunity to respond to this gospel. And every person does respond with a yes or a no. It's never just maybe. Ultimately, we can say maybe for a little while. But ultimately, if there's, a, there's a fork in the road. You have to say yes to Christ, the Lord overall, or no to Christ. Yes to the Savior, or no to the Savior. That was Paul's message. Because he knows that without the Savior, there's no life. And you know, the beautiful thing is that message is now out in the open. It's public. It's no longer hidden. Look at verse 26. He talks about the mystery which was which has been hidden from ages and past generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. What does it mean that it was hidden from past generations and past ages? Well, think of the whole time of the Old Testament. That was before the coming of Christ. It was hidden in the sense that Christ had not yet come. He was there, you could say, hidden in all the promises, right? Think of Genesis 3.15, right? The seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, right? He will crush the head of the serpent. But all the promises, he was hidden in all the promises of the Old Testament. He was hidden in all the prophecies, and yet he was not yet manifest. He was not yet revealed in, in, in an open way, you could say, uh, in the Old Testament. That came when Christ was born. Right? They were fully revealed. These promises, these prophecies became in the open, uh, were fully manifest, were fully out, were, were fully revealed in Christ himself, in his, de- in his birth in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in crushing the head of Satan on the cross and giving life to all who believe, new life to the nations. He's the head and king of the church. You know, back in the Old Testament, these promises and purposes were mainly restricted to the Jews, but now embraces all the nations of the world. Think of like to look at it this way. Think of a flower. When you think of a flower, is the whole flower inside the plant? Yeah. The whole flower is hidden inside the seed, inside the plant. But eventually, you say, oh, you see the flower. It reveals, it manifests all its beauty. What was always, always hidden in there, that's the Old Testament, now comes out in that beautiful flower, fragrance. And everything, all the riches of that flower come, to, come, come out in the open. That's Christ. He is the, the manifest glory of whom the scriptures speak about. 
And so Paul is in prison for the surprising news that Jesus is what? He's creating a, he's creating a new multi-ethnic family. In the Old Testament, it was mainly Hebrew, Jewish, among some others. But now today, Christ, the Lord and King of the world, of the nations, he is gathering people from every nation into his family. We call that the Garden of the Lord. Perhaps we call that the Garden of the Lord. Or Scripture gives such statements that show that it's a it's a new world that Christ has come to bring, a new creation that Christ has come to bring. The church sees it. Only the church sees it in the world. Only believers see it. But unbelievers, they don't see it. They don't understand. They persecute it. And yet this gospel of Christ challenges and overthrows every conceived of man creating a paradise on earth. It, over, it will overthrow Musk, Elon Musk's idea. It will be completely fruit, fruitless. Elon Musk, his plan, his vision will become utterly fruitless. Or think of the global vision for, for inclusivity, right? Wanting to remove the distinctions between light and darkness. Wanting to remove the distinctions between good and evil. In other words, wanting only a kingdom of Satan, but removing the kingdom of Christ. That will remain fruitless. It will come to nothing. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. Christ has come to bring the victory. That's the mystery. What is the mystery? <laughs> Christ. Christ in you. The hope of glory. See verse 27? To them, that is to the Gentiles, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember when Christ became flesh? Right? The divine glory came down from heaven, right? And it dwelt in Jesus. He was the word made flesh. And now the risen Jesus lives in you. The divine glory lives in you, in his body, in the church. The Christ in all his glorious riches dwells by his spirit, his people from all nations who trust in him for salvation. Romans 5, 2 says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Christ in you, the resurrection and the life in you, the living water in you, the bread of life in you, the way, the truth, and the life in you. This is the hope. He is the hope. He is the hope the world so desperately needs. I'm just struck by the division, the sadness, the despair, the depression all out there because their desire to see, to want what they want never gets fully satisfied. Christ is the one who satisfies that. He's the only, the one and only solid basis for the expectation of that future glory. What is that glory, by the way? The hope of glory. <laughs> what is that glory? 
We just look at a few verses from the Bible. Look at Colossians 1 verse 12. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So what is that glory? It's entering into an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom, kingdoms of this earth eventually die out, eventually fall. But the kingdom of Christ is forever and ever and ever. Colossians 3 verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, so refers to his second coming, then you will also appear with him in glory. Eternal bliss at his coming again, for whom Christ is their life. Or Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Yet the inheritance, which never perishes, never fades or spoils away. Our money will leave us. Our houses will leave us. In the casket, we'll take nothing with us. But for those in Christ, the hope of glory, it opens up into an inheritance, unimaginable inheritance that never fades, spoils, or perishes. Paul, <laughs> empty-handed in prison. I can, yes, suffering is nothing compared to what is waiting for me? The hope of glory, Christ. Yeah, in a world today, you notice that uh, people are not satisfied in our world. There's a there's a longing. There's a wanting of more and more. There's a you could say a thirst for more and more, and they're never that thirst is never quenched. There's a hunger, but it's never satisfied. Why is that? It all goes back to the beginning when we broke relationship with God in our sin. The image of God is broken in us. The relationship with God is broken. And the fulfillment that we had in God in paradise, sin broke that. And today, in man and his brokenness, he yearns for something. He wants more. He wants some true spiritual beauty. And he tries to create it. Can he? No, his life gets taken away. He yearns for some sort of moral and spiritual perfection. And so what does he do? He creates a religion to improve himself, to perfect himself. It's all fruitless. All, every bit of it is fruitless pursuit. Christ is the only answer. Christ in you. He says, among believers, it's Christ in you. But Christ is the only answer. The Son of God. He answers that unfulfilled need in sinful man. Christ lived. Christ alone lived that perfect life in obedience to God, which we should have lived but did not. And he did so as our substitute. He fully paid for the sins that we could never pay for. He fully paid for the sins of his people. And he alone conquered sin and death, rising from the dead. People want forgiveness. There it is, in Christ. You see that at the table in a few minutes. The breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. 
Only in Christ is forgiveness of sins. Only in him is the, the resurrection of life. Our bodies that die will be raised to life as his promise and life everlasting. These are the riches, right? These are the riches of the glory of the mystery of the Gentiles that Paul speaks about in verse 27. The riches of his glory. It's all there in Christ, in the person, not in a philosophy, but in a person, the one who reconciles us to God. Christ satisfies the longing for beauty. He satisfies the longing for moral and spiritual perfection. That is, it's given to all who repent from their sins and turn to him in faith. You know, Christianity alone is the only answer to a sin-broken world. Just, just very interesting. Um, just this past week, we had students come to visit from a Christian high school. They wanted to see what it looked like inside of Gudwara. And Father Peter took them to a Hindu temple. And when someone made the comment, Mr. Lanting, the bus driver, made a comment, he said, huh, we were here, just a simple building, nothing wrong with beautiful buildings. But he says, boy, those ornate, that ornate, beautiful Gurudwara and that beautiful temple on 427. He says, I guess they have their glory now. You notice, the only hope is Christ. The glory is the fact that only in Christianity is there an empty tomb. Is the grave empty? Christ arose. He broke the bars of death. He arose. And the glory is the fact that the grave is empty and we are in Christ and Christ in us. Him we proclaim, says Paul in verse 28, warning every man that includes woman, every man, every woman, be reconciled to God through Christ. Paul often pleads with the Gentiles, right, as he's brought, brought the gospel to the nations, be reconciled to God. And then that wasn't all. He would then teach them so that they could grow in the comfort of Christ. And what was the goal of Paul's teaching and warning? that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. Perfect here doesn't mean sinless, but to be mature, complete, fully grown. Christ who lives in you. We can be so thankful. He graciously and persistently works in our hearts by his Holy Spirit in a way that we may continue growing in our faith and being strengthened in our faith. One day, on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross, on the day of his return, there's a promise that he will present us holy, blameless, and above reproach, as we see in 1 verse 23. In the meanwhile, the spirit who lives in you, the church, is that spirit who energizes the church to be faithful. You know what comes along with the empty tomb? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what's so unique to the, Christi the Christian faith. All the other religions don't have an empty tomb. They have no Holy Spirit to energize them. But we who believe in Christ have the empty tomb. We have the Holy Spirit. 
And that's why Apostle Paul talks about the spirit who energizes the church to be faithful in her task, proclaim Christ. He's the one who gives that joy and suffering. Look at verse 28, 29. To this end, Paul says, I work hard, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Well, he's working hard. Sometimes you hear the expression, let go, let God. That's not biblical. You don't let go and become passive and let God. No, you work hard, right? You work faithfully, you work for the Lord. But even as you're working for the Lord, you realize it's not in your own strength, but who's the one who gives you the energy to be faithful in your task at work, to be faithful as a parent in your home and raising your children, to be faithful as, as a member in the church of Jesus Christ? Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit who energizes us, who enables us to continue in that task. It's his strength at work to make us faithful, to keep us going, even to the point of exhaustion, even to the point of sweat and tears. That's what the Apostle Paul did. Well, we can rest. And why can we do that? It's the hope of glory. We can rest totally in Christ's finished work and the working of his mighty spirit in us. Even as we struggle in the fight, in the long, hard battle against sin and temptation in our lives and bringing our children up for Christ, even being willing to suffer the loss of privileges for the sake of the church, for the sake of our families, for the sake of the kingdom of God, because we have a broader vision. We have a greater vision. We have the vision of glory, the hope of glory. So guys, keep, keep that vision before you. This is the, the energy, right? The, the, the energy that the Spirit gives, he enables us to keep our focus on that true goal, on that true prize, on that true reward. With our life in Christ, you have a foundation, not quicksand, but a firm foundation that Satan can never poke holes in, he can never chip away from. It's that firm foundation, you stand on it. And at the same time, he is the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach. Amen.